Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing the sixth episode of the first season of His Dark Materials, The Demon Cages, spelled the fancy way with an A. This episode was written by showrunner Jack Thorne because he will not let anyone else write. It was directed by Euros Lin. I hope I said your name correctly, Euros. He has directed a lot of television, uh, including Doctor Who, um, some Sherlock, some Daredevil, mostly British stuff. Go, Caitlin, go. So the summary for this week at the station, Lyra is briefly reunited with Roger and then processed by the research staff. During a fire drill, Lyra and Roger start a snowball fight and use the ensuing confusion to sneak off and find the cages where the Magisterium keeps the cutaway demons. Lyra and Roger talk to the other children and prepare them to try to escape on Lyra's signal. Mrs. Coulter arrives and demands to see the new and improved demon severing technique in action. She walks into the intercision room just as the researchers are about to sever Lyra and Pan and stops them. Mrs. Coulter tries to comfort Lyra and convince her that the suffering of a few is all worth it to learn how to prevent dust from making people sinful. She asks Lyra for the alethiometer, but Lyra gives her the tin with the spy fly instead and uses the diversion to run away, lock Mrs. Coulter in her room, and set off the fire alarm to start the children's escape. Lyra returns to the severing chamber and mashes buttons until it explodes. Then, the Egyptian Zen crew arrive and begin fighting the station staff and their Tartar guards. Midway through the battle, Seraphina arrives and kills all the bad guys using her magical witchy speed. Mrs. Coulter slinks away without being noticed. The Egyptians start their long journey back with the freed children, while Lyra, Roger, York, and Lee set off in the balloon to free Lord Azriel. Their balloon is attacked by cliff ghasts, and Lyra falls out into the foggy mist below. Also, Will watched some videos of his dad, so don't forget that he exists. Just a general note, I don't think it was a fire alarm. I think that oh, was, what was it? a leftover. I think it was an actual, like, or no, like a drill. Sorry, I don't think it was a drill. Oh, in the first one? Like it was a like in the book it was a fire drill, but in this one I think something actually like they had a technical difficulty with setting off the fire alarm when they were doing the severing. Wait, during what which part? The first one where they have the snowball fight? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh. Cuz the scientist man gets angry about it. Oh, yeah, he definitely seemed like he was not I guess yeah, I don't know who would have been in charge if it weren't for him. I guess maybe that was me just like internalizing book things and projecting them onto yes. the TV show. Whoops. Not important. I guess just so TV watchers aren't confused about why we think it's a fire drill. Oh, thank you for covering for me. So general feelings about this episode. 
I thought it did a great job of capturing the creepy atmosphere and the social dynamics at the station. I thought the set design was really great. The visuals were really great. Um, and maybe the battle at the end was a little disappointing, but overall I liked it. Yeah, I also really enjoyed the sort of creepy atmosphere this one had going on, which it like drops abruptly at the end. But until then, it was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost felt like a horror movie. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree with everything you said, Anya. When I was watching this, I was like, wow, like this is really like paying off all kinds of stuff that has been building for the whole show. A lot of like themes and ideas, you know, um, the difference between like adults and kids and um, authenticity. And like we talked about utilitarianism. And I thought the confrontation between Lyra and Mrs. Coulter was like really excellent and pays off their relationship and everything that Lyra has learned. Like I really bought that she was able to kind of go toe to toe and really try to lie to Mrs. Coulter and fool her. It just really worked for me. It was great. I and I really liked the the battle at the end and like how confusing it was and how it was like on two levels, like just visually like that was a really cool choice. I thought I ball vanger is like just great, like the whole design of it and everything just like spectacular. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's take that and move into our favorite parts. So for me this week, there wasn't one standout moment, but there were like a lot of small tweaks from the book that I really appreciated. I loved that they had Lyra work with the other girl uh, in the dorms who was like already a badass leader and the kids were already like thinking really strategically and and organizing. Um, It felt Mm -hmm. like super true to what would have happened there. And in the book, you know, Lyra kind of like rides in and everyone just like automatically accepts her as the leader. And that's like, I don't know, it's a little too perfect or something in some way. I thought this this just worked really well for me. I love that we got more insight into the evil scientists, uh, not because it redeems them, but because it actually makes the whole thing like creepier um, to kind of Mm -hmm. like put a human face on the evil. And I really love that they had Ma Costa kill the scientist with her bare hands. (laughs) <laughs> yeah the the quote-unquote nicer one too yeah <laughs> like alan was saying i really really liked the set for Bolvanger. i like how they they made it work uh because it really sets the the atmosphere for the show or for the episode but also like knowing that they were filming in cardiff they could they did a really good job of making it an indoor outdoor set so like something that they could build inside but because of the way they designed it it's still really looked good as something that was cold and like the outdoor hallways. Mm-hmm. And that, even though they were technically still inside the uh, what are those buildings? the soundstage. Yeah, like because you have the walls, but the snow yeah. at the same time. So I, I like that they did that rather than just a big fake snow field, because that probably would have looked terrible. Yeah, I completely mm-hmm. agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was a good choice. And they also just made it really work for them in an atmospheric way. And I also really like there's this really brief, like two second look between Serafina and Lyra that I really like. <laughs> when was that during the well, it's got to be during the battle. Yeah, it's during the battle when she comes in and she's stabbing everyone. And then when she stabs the scientist lady, like she's got this blank look on her face, just like I'm a witch. I kill people. But then she makes eye contact with Lyra and the look on her face completely changes. Ooh, I'll have to go back and check for that. That's cool. I really loved uh, Roger's moment, like what he does with um, all of the severed kids, because like Lyra's like, I got a mission for you. Go do this thing. 
And he's like, I don't know if I can do it. And she's like, bye. <laughs> and uh, she's like, well, shit. And so I was like, oh, Roger, what do you got to do, man? And I love the way that he like gives him this speech. I can't remember the exact words. I wanted to rewatch it in just that moment. But he basically like I feel like he has them take a step from being victims to being survivors, kind of taking their agency back. And I felt like this was kind of directly talking to a theme that we talked about in the episode with Francis, where there has been sexual abuse in the Catholic Church of children and um, all the cover ups and the way that, you know, that has left a lot of people desolate and faithless, like something irreplaceable was taken from those people. And it's the same thing with these kids. But Roger's like, hey, you know, we life goes on and it's not the same, but we we can still be, you know, we can still go. We can still make choices. And like that was really powerful to me. I I thought it was a very cool choice, a really cool thing to use Roger for um, and make him a part of the story. Mm hmm. Yeah, it gave him something to do. And it also, mm -hmm. I think, makes the, I mean, ultimately the story is kind of about the severed kids, right? Or like they're a huge part of the story. And so the fact that they don't just like disappear in this way that, you know, like Billy Costa died or whatever, that we actually see them and, and have them take up space in the story is cool, like you said. Although I think it's kind of hilarious that like Ma Costa had to watch Billy die or like, you know, gave him permission to die and now she's saving all these other kids that are in the exact same position as him. Mm -hmm. It just seems like odd storytelling. Do you think that that implies that like Billy was severed with the previous method and like now there's this new one and then all these other kids were done the new way? Maybe. Well, they did say like it increases the rate of survival, right? So... Mm -hmm. It do that doesn't necessarily mean little. that like everyone died before and no one dies now, right? Like it's just increasing right, right. the success of that. It's a probabilistic process. Um, and then also, you know, he was wandering around and a lot of his injuries may have been from like, you know, irreversible Exposure. effects of yeah. hypothermia or whatever. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems kind of shitty for Malcosta. Yeah. And 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 Billy. <laughs> <laughs> and Billy. Uh, least favorite part. Okay, so I'm going to try and justify my disappointment with the battle scene here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of it had to do with misplaced expectations from the book. Um, that right. basically, in the book, that battle felt like much more epic and big scale. And, you know, in our episode on those chapters, we talk about, you know, how there's like all these momentum changes and how awesome it is. And because mm -hmm. I'm the one in the group who is re-listening to those book episodes uh, right before we record, just you know, feel feel like you need to call us out right there. <laughs> actually, if we're going to do that, I'll actually call myself out. Listen for the first time, not re-listen, because uh, you guys just already did your homework a long time ago. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, so I was kind of set up to expect that. Uh, and, and what we get is like much more smaller scale, kind of like shorter, intimate, like less involved. Um, and, and so that was kind of like my reaction from watching it the first time, but upon more reflection, I definitely understand why they did it that way. Right. You know, they didn't want to blow their whole budget on it. This isn't game of Thrones. It's a bunch of kids and some scientists with a small set of mercenary guards. And, uh, and like you said, I think um, staging it and like a tighter 
indoor space as opposed mm-hmm. to in an open field was like absolutely the right choice visually, like much easier to pull off and do a good job at it. And on my second watch through the episode, I liked it a lot better. So I think, you know, like once your expectations are adjusted properly, it works. But I was like kind of disappointed at first. It's interesting that you bring up Game of Thrones, because if you recall in season one, they did not have the budget for a single battle. That's they had true. To cut all the battles from the book. And it actually worked in their favor at the time, but or at least I thought it did. Mm-hmm. Made for better television in a way. So it's, I don't know where I was going with that sentence. <laughs> Your least favorite part. That's where you were going. Um, the demons are just kind of left in the cages. Wait. They don't try to. Didn't they show them like. still? Yeah, they're bringing them with them, but they're still in cages. Oh, weird. Okay, yeah, yeah that's fair. I guess that didn't really occur to me. I mean, maybe the kids. Like, it's too weird to be reunited with your demon that you're no longer connected to? I don't know. I don't know. That wasn't that wasn't the thing in the book. Because in the book, the nurses have their demons with them, even though they've been severed. Mm-hmm. So... Do we not see right. the nurses with any demons? No. In the, oh, interesting. Mm-mm. And no. and it's sort of implied that she hasn't even thought about her demon in a while. Because when Lyra asks about him, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. kind of, like, stuns her. Yeah, zones her out. I don't. I didn't really have like a specific least favorite bit that I could point to and be like, "Ugh, that bit was just weird to me." Why not reunite them with the kids again? They really seem to not want to put the money into having humans touch demons much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because also, actually, you know what? Here's my real least favorite bit: when they got out of the machine, Lyra and Pan did not immediately become like physically attached. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like why? I liked the moment that they filmed between Lyra and Mrs. Coulter there, but I, I, Lyra would have grabbed Pan and not let go of him. Like, he's not even in the oh, scene sure. where she's talking to yeah. Mrs. Coulter. No, you're right. Yeah. He'd be wrapped around her neck or something. Yeah. 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 I, di- I didn't, you know, speaking of that, I didn't like the when the guy grabbed Pan and she just like passed out. I feel like that does not, you know, get across what's going on there at all and it kind of contradicts what we saw boreal do with the butterfly i guess he you could argue that he wasn't actually touching the demon he just had it like contained but it did cross my mind that it was like a very different visual way of showing like hands on or near a demon Mm -hmm. it made yeah that made me think of the like the previous episode if like billy had reached out and grabbed pan and been like Ratter, is that you? We could have had a moment where Lyra was like, whoa, don't touch. What are you doing? Yeah. Uh, and we could have gotten across that, like, this is a taboo and what does it mean and all of this stuff in a way that would have prepared us for this moment where this other thing happens. And then it's like, I, I guess she passed out because he choked Pan, maybe. Like, I feel like people who haven't read the book would be like, why? What happened? What, what, what was that? The demon interactions in general have been very floofy yeah because even later on when she's destroying the machine and she like she gets really far away from pan there Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. whatever (laughs) (laughs) it's inconsistent yeah that wasn't my thing though i was a little bit disappointed in what goes down here um with ma costa we're just disagreeing about everything Uh, today alan oh that's no well i don't i don't um well, I guess we could talk about it. I I think it's cool that she um kills that guy and like her righteous anger and and all. Of, I'm I'm way into that. Like go, these are 
terrible people. I just want there to be more moral weight, I guess. Like we've we've had, you know, that scene, speaking of the scene with Lord Boreal and the, the butterfly reporter, um, after he crushes the butterfly, it the camera like lingers on his face and there's he he doesn't just like, you know, kind of like fix his suit and and like, you know, run his fingers through his fabulous hair or anything. He like has a disturbed look on his face like he is unhappy about what he just did. But he did it because that's what he had to do to get the job done. It like took a price to him. And I feel like we've seen a lot of the internal price to Mrs. Coulter. And like that makes all of those characters more interesting. But then like this, you know, killing these bad people and freeing these kids is like morally weightless in a way that I feel like the show has not been doing with violence. And maybe it'll come around for Ma Costa that she like broke that guy's neck with her bare hands. I don't want her to regret it. I just want her to be like a little you know, conflicted. I killed someone. Yeah. Well, not even conflicted, but like you don't have to, you know, like you can do a good thing and be like, God, I, I did that. I'm capable of that. Like, and just be a, a little bit, you know, aghast yeah. at yourself. Or well, like, I, just take a moment. And we know for damn sure that that actress is capable of doing that. So, oh, yeah. It must yeah. have been, you know, in the direction or they just decided, it's yeah, a choice. decided not to do it. Yeah. And in the books, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but in the books, I don't, I don't think we ever see Malcosta again. Mm. So, can't spoil what doesn't happen. That's true. Um, I don't know. In the show, I would suspect they would change it because you do see John Faw and Farter Quorum again. I see. Um, so just, just as a way of like elevating a female character and giving her yeah more of a role. But but not until like the very end do we see them again. Mm. So I I highly doubt that we're going to have an emotional impact there. Yeah, I you know we'll see. She's great. I if they use her more, that'd be great. I would also like and- it. But I have my doubts. <laughs> I'd like to see uh, moral weight to decisions. That would be great. Okay. Uh, so, Kaylin, what are you knitting this week? Well, nothing. Because there was no new knitwear in this episode. <laughs> and I'm very upset about it. But we did see Lyra reunited with her hat, which was very important. And obviously more important that we saw that than where was the alethiometer? And I was keeping that away from the scientists and... Figuring out that the Egyptians are indeed still on their way. Yeah, I was like very specifically looking in that scene to see if that little pouch was there. And they like, it was like just below the framing of the shot. I mean, the real question is where in the fuck did she pull that tin can box out of when she hands it to Mrs. Coulter? Yeah, that's fair. When she's in like her her one piece shorts thing. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. where was she hiding that? How did she keep a hold of it? But whatever. Totally unrelated. Can you use your demon as a bag of holding? Is that like, can you go like, Pan, swallow this? And then, okay, now throw but it But then up. what if he swallows it as like a bear and then turns into a moth? That's what I mean. Oh. Like, doesn't it just like, it'd be like the amazing shrinking stuff inside of you. Like, it's a bag of holding. You put whatever you want in there. I've talked in depth about how we need to study demons. We need like good scientists <laughs> set up in a good lab. Swallow this. With now, volu- now turn into something small. Tear children. Well, you can't really volunteer children because they're minors. Mm, but you can get <laughs> consent from their parents. That's true. I mean, we do research on children. I just, any, any, any way I describe this, it sounds kind of like child torture, but I think it does need to happen. <laughs> 
Okay, so I did actually have one textile-related comment. Oh, sure, which sure, sure. could maybe fit in the knitting corner, um, which is that we haven't really talked about this since we started talking about the show, but in the book, we talked quite a bit about how we really liked Philip Pullman's uh, choice of language and how certain terms he would just slightly tweak so that you know it's not from our world and you can right, yes. figure out what things are, but just like the terminology is slightly off. And one of my uh, favorite words of those that he uses was uh, when he's talking about those like suits that they wear at the station. He um, says that they're made out of coal silk, which is, of course, like nylon. Right. So. Oh, this is like my sky iron yeah. moment. <laughs> I just thought that that was like a color. No, it's fucking silk made out of coal. It's plastic fabric. It's nylon. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's funny. <laughs> I didn't get that at all. That's very cool. So that's like when they, so those suits are correct. Yes, they are. Basically. I was looking very carefully for the coal huh. silk. That's cool. I will also say at the end of the episode, Lee Scoresby is wearing like a double breasted leather turtleneck thing. And which is the weirdest combination of things, but it <laughs> works on turtle- him. Okay, I'm also going to have to go back and rewatch that because I was it not works paying on him careful enough attention. Really well. And I actually don't think personally, like Lin-Manuel Miranda is not really to my taste of a good looking individual. But in that shirt, he very much was okay. with the almost military style buttons. Uh, very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he looked good. He was doing his cowboy thing. I was way into yeah. it. Like, this is awesome. I'd watch a whole episode of this it was i i shall say it was better than Azriel's sweater look <laughs> i yeah i'm with you yeah like if he didn't have the sweater on like i'd be more interested <laughs> i actually rewatched the lion the witch in the wardrobe recently uh, just because he which, doesn't have a shirt on in that one yeah he doesn't have a shirt on the whole time <laughs> oh and those hooves and, are uh, so Chris- sweet no, just Christina was teasing me. She was like, <laughs> should I get you like a fireman uh, calendar with puppies on it? And then I can look at the puppies and you can look at the fireman. I was like, enough. That's enough. All right. Shall we? Or did we have any problematics in this episode? Nobody wrote anything in, but just did anybody think of anything? I, I saw on Twitter. This isn't my problematic. If there's any problematics, I, I did see some people. uh European Twitter, that's the thing, right? Um, who were saying like, hey, that Serafina actress is not Finnish or Sammy or like there's no Sammy people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's how you say that. So like, you know, a lot like the Egyptians, there's no Roma people, you know, same same story. I do think to a degree, and it just doesn't get talked about very much, that Sami culture is used a lot like indigenous culture over here is used and that it's yeah. this mystical thing that they can just throw in to make something mystical. You know what I mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. I was actually thinking that too, that making witches an ethnic minority actually seems more problematic rather than less problematic. Yeah, it hasn't, I didn't bring it up before because it was something that I meant to look more into before I brought it up, uh, which then of course I never got around to, so that's my problem. <laughs> um, but I know on the other podcast that Ani and I do, uh, about a discovery of witches, there is a witch on that who is, I believe, Finnish. And I remember seeing on Tumblr somebody commenting on some of the Sammy themed props that they gave her and how that was kind of bad. Mm. Hmm. So I do think it is a recurring problem in European fiction in the way that, in the same vein that North American fiction likes to 
you know, send people on quote unquote vision quests and that sort of shit. Right, right. Send right. white people on quote unquote vision quests. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or that, you know, like your entire culture is that thing, you know. Indigenous people are like they're just always talking about eagles and bears and shit, you know, like like they're all just stone cold experts on their religiosity the way that we are uh, about our religiosity. Right. But again, I did. I didn't have a chance to do much looking into it. So I'm not I'm not 100 percent on any of that stuff, which is why I haven't brought it up. Yeah. And that wasn't I don't know how much of an issue it was. Like I said, I saw it on, you know, people discussing the show on Twitter who were from. Like they were like Swedish people who happened to be tweeting in English. I was like, huh? Oh, yeah, you're right. So speaking of a discovery of witches, how did you find the flying? I liked it. But again, it was in the dark and we didn't like it wasn't like we had a close up on the emotional faces. You know, it wasn't like flying with acting. It was just like there's a body in the sky. Yeah, they definitely like it's speedy and not lingering shots yeah so i i think that worked out for it Mm -hmm. yeah they played to the strengths of like their capacity and there's just one witch which um oh yeah that's that's like like part of the whole (laughs) scale of the battle right instead of having all of the witches there's just one and she pretty much ends the battle in about 15 seconds yeah and that's a problem because like it makes me So now I'm like doing the like comic book nerd power level stuff. Like is Serafina exceptional in in witchy terms or when a boatload of witches show up, is this going to be like a devastating force that is are they all able to do that thing or is this a Serafina thing? Ooh, that's a good question. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it does make it. It does make any battle that the witches are involved in more complicated in the way that they did that. Mm-hmm. Just or at least but it was very cool. it, even if they're not more complicated, it, it'll make it like either they'll have to scale back what the witches can do, which will just be kind of shitty, or they'll have to have it so that the witches are only ever fighting witches to make battles interesting. Because otherwise, whatever side has a witch wins. Mm-hmm. Right, but we all think it worked. Did you think it worked? Oh, on you? I liked it. Yeah, like visually, it worked for sure. Mm-hmm. We're all thumbs up. It was good. Good job, Bad Wolf. You did it. This time. This time. Caitlin, Caitlin is like I guess 7.0. We'll see. Still salty about that flying. It was so bad. I it was so bad. Okay. I have like a couple other kind of like book comparison things I can run through before we like super get into the the themes of everything. Yep. Um so first uh, Lyra does not, in fact, burn down the station using a bag of flour. I was so upset. So that scene with fuck? Ma Costa in the kitchen in the earlier episode was not, in fact, foreshadowing. Why would they have that? When did that happen? If what? <laughs> what scene? Are you continuing on a bit? Or yeah, yeah, okay. this is a bit. Okay, it's called good. gaslighting. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. I. I was like, why did they why did they have that scene earlier with the flower and the gas fire if they weren't going to have Lyra throw the f- flower on the gas? What was the point of any of it? I told you, it was just like a cute little thing. It was sweet, yeah, sure. but it w- it definitely did feel like a thing. It was like, I was just so surprised it never came to anything. And now it's like, I kind of like that they're just like, nah, we were just messing with you. 
We're literally gaslighting you. Also, I really loved that they had Mrs. Coulter crawling through the ceiling vents instead of Lyra. Yeah. That was oh, like man. such an intentional wink at the book readers. Yeah. That I feel like. But also a callback. Well, oh, yeah. And a callback to the monkey. Yeah. Yeah. But like Lyra using the ceiling to get around in the station is like such a important part of the book. I felt like it was kind of, I mean, you would have noticed this if you hadn't read the book, but it felt like another one of those intentional comparisons where it's kind mm-hmm. of like setting them up as in opposition to each other. It's great. You know, I, I did like that bit, especially it was kind of like a almost paying homage to that. Because mm-hmm. I do feel like. Yeah, it would have been the, really disappointing if no one went in the ceiling. Um, yeah. And they're like, but we're not going to do it with Lyra. We'll just put Mrs. Coulter up there. And I, I do feel like they, like in the book, I think this sequence has kind of an espionage almost feel to it. But in the show, they kind of went with that creepy horror movie feel. Mm-hmm. So I get why they cut Lyra sneaking around and overhearing things and that sort of thing. Mm. But I like that they, that they did put somebody in the ceiling. Yeah, that's a really good observation that it's more of like a thriller than it is. A horror show. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, I really, I actually, I really like everything that happens with Mrs. Coulter around that sequence because it makes a lot more sense than what I feel like we get in the book where it's a little bit contrived, right? Like she gets knocked out by the spy fly and then she's out until like the last minute of the fight. And then, and you know, and then she like goes back and gets her forces and we don't know how any of that happened. And this was like, just emotionally a lot better. And you see that like she will do anything till like, she'll, you know, undignified, just crawling through, you know, the ceiling and, and all of this stuff. Like it just, it's way better. Mm-hmm. I think. And she also, when she jumps out of the ceiling, still just looked perfect. Yeah. No dust. Yeah. Her yeah, hair yeah. was immaculate. In terms of the spy fly thing that we did complain a little bit about in our book episode, in terms of like it not making sense how it, really attacked Mrs. Coulter. Um, The way they executed that here, it's much less like her being attacked and more just like kind of the distraction. Yeah, I still don't think it makes any sense, but whatever. It's the weakest part of Mm -hmm. the whole thing, I think, because it's very contrived. but I, it, but it's well done here. I mean, if if it's like the assignment is like you have to include this, I don't know how you could do it much better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Certainly, yeah. it didn't come across as like a huge plot hole the way it was visually mm-hmm. executed here, the same way it did in the book. Mm-hmm. Except for how it was in her shorts. <laughs> Wait, was it? I must have missed that part. <laughs> well, like it must have been. Some oh oh where? oh you mean in Lyra shorts? I thought you yes. meant it like went up Mrs. Coulter's, oh no like <laughs> outfit no. <laughs> I meant like where was Lyra keeping that? No, that's that's completely fair. It actually makes zero sense for them to bring that along with them, like no sense. You know why didn't they leave that buried in the ground back? You know in England or something. It like whatever. Why but, would Lyra have brought that in with her and not the alethiometer? How would how? What? Mm-hmm. That's fair. But why is it even with them in Trollicent and stuff? Why? Why? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. In the book, it made it very clear when Lyra was having, I think she actually has Yorick make the tin for it and everything. Mm-hmm. But it right. made it sort of very clear that she was kind of thinking she was almost planning this. Right. Yeah. Right? No, no. I. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Okay. But like this, 
is like, why do you have that? Yeah. Like, why bring the thing that can tell her, like, if it does get out while you guys are carrying it, it then, boom, it knows exactly where you are and it's off. Like, it's, if you leave it in England, it's got to catch up to you right, to yeah. find out where you are. Like, it doesn't make any sense, but whatever. Like, it's okay. Anyways, this is like part two of Spy Flies Don't Make Sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or at least not the way they're used in this story. Do you guys have any sense of like what the gobbler's goal is in the show? Because we get a kind of stated thing here, but I'm not totally sure what success looks like. Right. So the old scientist lady says something like, I forget what exactly she says, <laughs> but she seems truly to believe that they are attempting to free people from sin. Mm-hmm. But that just yeah. seems like believing that that is what the people like funding this want seems incredibly naive because obviously what they're doing is literally building an army of mindless slaves. Yeah. Right. Does success look like the nurses, but kids? Well, what I would assume was success looks like the kids growing up into mindless slaves. Okay. So in our book discussion, we talked about how there is a lot of really obvious references to original sin and how getting rid of curiosity and knowledge could actually be a reasonable goal. But it sounds like maybe you're kind of backing off of that. Well, no, I think that is what a mindless zombie kind of is. Yeah. Right? It's just like, go do go do this. And they're like, you don't ask why. Yeah, you just like... Like that one scientist is like, why am I doing this? Or is this okay? Like you'd want somebody who's just like, just go do yeah, it. Yeah, just like I told going you. through the motions of whatever will get you into heaven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's what they seem to think is the goal of the magisterium, that they just want everybody to get into heaven and any pain that, that is caused on physical earth mm-hmm. doesn't matter because what matters is, you know, after... The afterlife, mm-hmm. which does make sense for the sort of thematic ending of the series. Mm-hmm. So actually, if they were going to double down on that, I wish they'd kind of gone down harder on it. That was a sentence. Anyways. Um, <laughs> but again, I just think that that is like maybe maybe the younger dude could believe that. But the lady just didn't seem that naive to me to believe that that is what the magisterium wants, like that it actually wants these good things for people. Yeah, it didn't seem like what she wanted. She she seemed like she was more on board with your project of like, I need to like demon testing is my thing. Yeah. <laughs> and like, <laughs> this is just convenient. But but again, I, I can definitely 100 percent see the magisterium funding, like, please create us an army of slaves, mm-hmm. you know, a mindless. We can control them completely. So then it really has nothing to do with sin at all. It's just about creating uh, like a class of people who are obedient and you can manipulate however you want. Unless you think that the people who are funding this actually care about people getting into heaven. I mean, I would say less about, I don't think it's actually about people getting into heaven, but I can see them being concerned with people's sinful behavior on earth, right? Like maybe they think, you know, prostitution and alcoholism and out of wedlock whatever or like people questioning authority is a big problem you know my so. favorite hobby out of wedlock whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry 
they seem to have a bigger problem with poor people than anything else, yeah. it seems to me. It it would be interesting to see all of this from the Magisterium's point of view, see what they actually want. Yeah, it's interesting. We haven't really been in the Magisterium in a few episodes. I mean, we have a lot of ground to cover in a very short number of episodes. Yeah. Uh, so it makes sense, but... This is kind of the Magisterium. That's true. Yeah. The, I... the northern branch. <laughs> right. And I guess both it's things could be secret. true. Like, there could be people in the Magisterium who truly want this to work, to be able to cut the sin out of people. Because that can that's that is still evil in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But And then there could be people who see this for its potential of mindless slaves. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that's uh, that puts it really nicely. Yeah. And so, yeah, so the, the person, the ideal child to come out of this would be something like the nurse's then is is what you're saying basically it just occurred to me that this is maybe somewhat analogous to the castrata right that the church used to mutilate uh young boys by castrating them and then um so they would have like really high falsetto voices but we've talked about this before in the book what we've talked about this before did we it's in the book yeah i thought we talked about circumcision i don't remember talking about um it's later that that the that idea comes okay. up. Okay, but yeah, but yeah so I, like I think it's totally the point is never to like right like you don't need everyone to be castrated and actually it's really bad for everyone to be castrated. You just want like a certain number of people to be this way to do a certain job, right? Mm-hmm. Is that that's actually kind of why uh, I didn't particularly like how they changed a little bit of what Mrs. Coulter says to Lyra. Because in the book, Lyra says, you know, why did you save me from the machine if it's such a good thing? And Mrs. Coulter says something like, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to let good but painful things happen to those you love. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? Or if you care about somebody, sometimes it's hard to make the hard choice for them. But you can implying make the hard that, choice for other people. Yeah. Implying that she does think it's good or not. You know what I'm saying. While in yeah. this one, she just sort of says, well, we haven't got all the kinks ironed out yet, so I don't want them experimenting on you. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah, I really I really like that talk and still find a lot of Mrs. Coulter in my parenting when I'm watching her. <laughs> I think it's um, I think it's a thing that any parent feels like this feels, um, you know, very heightened and metaphorical and everything, but very real. Uh, where you try to like give your child every material advantage in the world and um, you know you end up doing things or or like you know participating in stuff that maybe doesn't agree with your morals but you do it anyway because you got to do what you got to do for your kids but then at the same time you try to give your kids the these like high moral values and like tell them what's right and what's wrong and then your kids will turn around and then be like, uh, so why are you being a hypocrite right now? And you're like, well, you don't understand. <laughs> I'm not really a hypocrite. I'm like doing it for you because of love. It's like uh, Felicity Huff moneying your kid into UCLA or whatever. And then yeah. uh, not telling them about it. <laughs> mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's like that whole talk. I was just like, uh, this is very, this is a very real thing that parents and their kids like the kids kids are not dumb like they can see that your walk does not match your talk even though you're like trying to do the right thing 
like your inconsistencies are visible to them and they, you know, kids are more idealistic Mm -hmm. and, and it's hard to have those conversations with your kids where they're like, yo, you are messing up and like, shut up kid. You're a kid. (laughs) Yeah. That's not how you win that argument. Just to finish up what I was saying, I do really like the conversation between Mrs. Coulter and Lyra. I just wish they had kept that one little thing how it was in the book because I think it says more about Mrs. Coulter. Do you think that's an honest thing in the book or is this more honest? I don't know. Is, is any of it honest? It's so hard to tell because like, because again, we don't know who believes what, like we were just yeah. talking about, like who believes this is actually a good thing and who just wants to do it for other reasons. I was thinking when I was watching this, like, why is Mrs. Coulter in charge of this? What, what happened? And I, this is just like wild fan theory of the TV universe. Mm -hmm. But like my thinking was like, what if Mrs. Coulter was a better person in the past and slowly became more and more evil over time? And the way that that happened was that, you know, her daughter went off, you know, to, to whatever the nunnery or something. Right. Um, and then Azriel took her out of there and she doesn't know where her daughter went. And so she starts a magisterium funded program to find orphan children and like do dust experiments oh. in the hopes that it will recover Lyra. So the dust is and just then, a ruse. She had to come up with some reason why it had to be children. Right. And then finally, like here, it does work. Like she does capture Lyra, but and then Lyra is in the heart of this thing that she created to capture her and is about to be destroyed. And she's like, no. Um, Ooh, I love so that. She, I don't know yeah. if I believe it, but I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I that's how I feel. Like I don't I don't feel that, but I would like it if it was true. Yeah, that's all that's all I could think of. Like, why would she be part of this? That's the only thing that makes sense to me other than unless she's like, you know, it's more boring to me if she's like straight out of the gate. Like, I want to watch kids get tortured and be a part of that. I know there's the interpretation that something when she was younger, you know, a little older than Lyra happened to Mrs. Coulter that made her really not like her demon. Mm -hmm. Oh, And that she. That's why she's always slapping him around. Mm hmm. Or not like that part of herself, obviously, well, same thing, really. But, yeah. And so she gets involved in, and again, you could even say that, like, you know, having the affair with Azrael kind of ruined her goals and her life. And you could blame that on, on, I see what you're saying, though, on the demon and, and original sin and that type of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Her wanting to research how to stop those feelings in others. While having a side of I'm an evil bitch and like torture, <laughs> you know, it's good to like your job. Yeah. So that's that's an interpretation you could go with. No, I like that, that she's trying. Yeah, that she's trying to iron out that lust. Yeah. In people like I don't think the affair with Azriel would be enough quite to send her down that path. I would think something else had to have happened. Yeah. I do like the idea that she is motivated by her own past lust and like sinful mistakes with Azriel. I don't really like the idea that she had some sort of weird altercation with her demon because I think that relationship works much better as just a contrast of self-love versus self-loathing in Lyra versus herself. I was thinking more like 
maybe when she was a young teenish type person, maybe young 20s, uh, she was taken advantage of. Like, oh, oh, I see. Like somebody grabbed her demon or something. Not, not like that. No, sorry. I don't know how to explain what I'm saying, but somebody appealed to that lustful side of her and convinced her to do things or something like, like an older man taking advantage of a younger woman. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, just like lied to her groomed. and did all this. Groomed yeah. in a way that it, like, at the time she thought it was consensual, but yes. in fact, yes. it was actually not. Like, uh, and then, like Drake and Billie Eilish. I know about pop culture. <laughs> that type of thing yeah maybe even in an academic setting right because that's kind of a thing yeah mm-hmm. and maybe that's you know part of why she doesn't really like that lyra was at jordan college and you know there's a whole bunch of places you could go with that so that's and it would blame it would put her in a place to blame her demon for being naive or being taken in by Ooh. sin and lust and stuff and so in that way it's it's just kind of like the source or the initial start of some of her self-loathing. Yeah. Mm, I like that. But that is also just my own personal interpretation. Nothing. Uh, Yeah. Nothing particularly in canon to support it. I was, uh, I was thinking when I was watching it too, that, uh, like along those same lines that, you know, like Mrs. Coulter hates the monkey, which means she hates herself and Lyra loves pan, which means she loves herself. And that this whole project is about, separating kids from their demons which is like kind of destroying a connection that you have to yourself and that is the experience of a lot of people who not so much here in america or north america with catholicism but especially like evangelical christianity in like its ties to big business and stuff like that in the late 20th century and like you know it's just basically christianity is really good at telling you like you're terrible and you should hate yourself um And so like, that's like literally what they're doing is like taking you away from you and then like remaking you in, in whatever way they see fit. It's, but literally, you know, which I didn't get when we read the book exactly like, oh, this metaphor is like, (laughs) it's like Buffy and, and, and hell being uh, uh, high school and hell being one thing in Buffy, you know, this is literally what it is. Yup. High school was hell. Yeah, it makes sense that it's about like breaking your own internal compass and and your sense of self and then redirecting all of your energy towards like external goals based on what the institution wants, whether that be a church or a corporation or something. On a much lighter note, I don't think I've ever related to an evil person more than when the scientist lady walks into the room and is like, are we drinking? <laughs> <laughs> It also reminded me of people I know who've been stationed in Antarctica. There's like right. a lot of alcoholism there. Because there's nothing else to do. Because there's nothing else to do and you're just like stuck inside. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's like my family who lives in Alberta. Alberta, Antarctica, same thing. I'm sure oh. all the Albertans who listen to our podcast are thrilled oh, yeah. with that comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should uh, hit that square on the bingo card and talk about utilitarianism. Can I do the other thing and then go into utilitarianism? Yeah. Fuck yeah, sure. no, just utilitarianism. <laughs> All right, that's fair. Your choices are. I think I have. Your like, choices are teleology, utilitarianism, and Moses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I do have three things on this one, but I didn't have anything on the last one, so I feel like I banked it or something. Um, 
anyway, when I was watching this, I thought of um, Dostoevsky, of course. Of course. You know, like I'm all, yeah, I'm always thinking of Dostoevsky. He had a lot of books in Russian, but um, in one of those books, uh, he had a story within a story. Uh, it's weird. I don't, I'm not totally sure how to explain this. Um, it's called The Grand Inquisitor. It's kind of, it's kind of famous. I would be shocked if Philip Pullman had not heard of this. And and from stuff that I've read of his, it seems like he is 100% on board with the Grand Inquisitor story. So um, Dostoevsky wrote a novel. I think it's called The Brothers. Karamazov. I, I don't speak Russian. Thank you. Yeah, something like that. I've never read it, but I've um, heard people say it out loud. Yeah. So inside of that story is a story that you know, one character tells to another. He's like, I made up this story. I'm going to tell you this story. So I'm going to summarize the story. And you'll uh, hopefully you'll see the point of me bringing this up and why I thought of it. This is like in Spain during the Spanish Inquisition. Um, that's why it's called the Grand Inquisitor. And Jesus comes back uh, to Earth. Um, he doesn't make a big deal of it, just kind of shows up in Seville. And um, they're burning some people at the stake. And he shows up to the barbecue and he's like, what up? I'm here. And uh, and people are like, Jesus Christ. And he's like, I know. <laughs> and uh, and then and then they're like, but really, is it you? And he's like heals people and is talking to people. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. Jesus is back. And the Grand Inquisitor shows up and says, uh, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, you Jewish guy, you're under arrest. And then he puts Jesus in a dungeon and basically lectures him about how Jesus messed up Christianity. Basically, like he tells him, you know, when he, he kind of goes through like several events in the Bible and tells Jesus that he did it wrong. Just just to be clear for people <clears throat> like me, Jesus yeah. like invented Christianity. Yeah. 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 That's part of the irony. Okay, okay, cool, 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 cool. Just wanted to make sure I was on the correct <laughs> page there and not misunderstanding the very, very, very little that I know about Christianity. Carry on. <laughs> Basically, like he tells them, um, there's at one point in the Bible, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. This is in the Gospels. Um, so it's part of Christianity, not part of the story. <clears throat> Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan in three different ways. Uh, and you know, he's like out there fasting, no water, no food for like a month. And um, Satan is like, hey, you're Jesus. You could turn these rocks into bread and like eat because you're Jesus. So stop being hungry. Like just just eat. And Jesus is like, man shall not live by bread alone. Um, you know, there's more to life than your material appetites, basically. And the Inquisitor is like, here's your first mistake, Jesus, because if we as the church go into people's lives and take away their capacity to feed themselves and then we give them their daily bread, then they have to come to us for their survival. And now we've got them. Now we can teach them right from wrong. But you, you're like, don't worry about your body just worry about like what's on the inside and like you're giving people too much freedom. People are not strong enough spiritually. They're not smart enough to understand what you're talking about. And a lot of people slip through the cracks because of you. 
if you just would have ate that bread, everything would have been better. And basically, like the Inquisitor just kind of goes on like that and and says that the way that the church should operate is exactly what Caitlin said earlier about the Balvanger project, that there should be a small group of people who understand right from wrong and reality in the church and everyone else is a choiceless slave who depends on the church, but who is sinless because their choices are so limited that all they can do is good. Mm. And that that's what Jesus should have done. And Jesus just kind of sits there and stares at him like, really? And then at the end, the Inquisitor is like, hey, tomorrow we're going to tie you up and burn you at the stake because we don't need you. The The church is better off. Without we got you. the book. Yeah. And so like it, you know, what it shows you there is that Dostoevsky is saying that Catholicism is more invested in its institution than in its ideals. It doesn't operate according to the principles that it was founded on, but on its institutional priorities of controlling, you know, its um, population, not really in any way that materially serves them, but that serves the interests of the church itself as an institution. And that it's like following a set of rules by the letter that like came from principles, but violating those principles themselves. Yeah, in spirit. Right? Like, is the what makes lust bad? Is it lust itself or is it that like it causes you to harm people? Yeah, right. Exactly. And, you know, and they would just say like, hey, we're only going to, you know, in terms of what the Grand Inquisitor would do, he'd say, well, we're just going to castrate almost everybody. Um, And then lust isn't a problem because we're just going to take away your choices. Population isn't a problem Um, either. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, just some people will be allowed to breed. And that's, you know, if if the goal is to get people into heaven, the Inquisitor's point is you did it wrong by letting people have choices, because the way that we are set up as human beings is we're selfish, rebellious, sinful creatures. And you trusted that to choose you when you made the standard so high like, how dare you? We're having to fix all of your mistakes for the last 1500 years. And I, you know, that's like utilitarianism right there is, you know, whatever you got to do to get those people into heaven, if it means you have to set up, um, you know, electromagnetic guillotine to sever children from their spiritual animals, you do that because you got to get this job done. Like, so that's what I saw. Like I, I was thinking about that story by Dostoevsky and the way that that like is based on utilitarianism and how, you know, institutions will kind of do whatever they got to do to to keep their head above water, even if it contramands the, you know, like, hey, we're a pharmaceutical company, but we're not going to cure diseases. We're going to treat them and we're not going to treat the ones that aren't, you know, have a, a big demographic. Uh, we're going to oh, we got to do this for money. We got to do that for money. Like, even if you have the best intentions, it doesn't matter because you have to do whatever keeps your organization alive. And, you know, that's utilitarianism and like postmodern problem. <laughs> we get a lot of that in this episode. We get people talking about the greater good or like Mrs. Coulter has a line about like the we sacrifice the few for the many. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's like the trolley problem in a sentence. 
right? You you hit that one person so that the six people can live. And if you got to chop up a few orphans to get the world into heaven, the, they're not orphans. You do it. They're stolen children. Well, they're yeah. You know, their their parents know. are alive mostly. Potato tomato. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Potato tomato. <laughs> <laughs> Apple orange. It's all fruit. Um. Well, that's kind of a good lead into something that I wanted to talk about, which is kind of relating this utilitarian project and their justification of it to uh like bioethics and scientific research in our world because i found it really interesting that even though you know we consider this like it's a rule-based world where everything is done by the magisterium right like you can tell that everyone thinks this experimentation is immoral but it's not really against the rules like there are it doesn't seem like there are any rules in place. So this is like a world without a set of structures for philosophical or scientific research. And which is obviously like very different from currently how science operates. There's like so many different organizations that you have to go through if you want to conduct scientific research, depending on whether you're working on like humans or vertebrate animals. Um, you have to like go through an IRB and get informed consent from all of your subjects but of course like that was not always the case and so actually it's kind of interesting like we've talked about how in many ways this world this like alternate universe that liars in feels a lot like our universe but kind of like 80 years ago or something Mm -hmm. maybe like the 20s 30s or something in terms of the technology and like gender dynamics and all of that architecture architecture, yeah and it also it actually works really good as uh like a similar benchmark for ethics and scientific research um because during that time period there were also not a lot of rules governing like what kinds of scientific research you could do in our worlds and so i wanted to talk a little bit just about the the Tuskegee study, which is kind of like the classic example of uh, like scientific research gone awry and like how you absolutely like cannot do like basically like taking advantage of uh, a disadvantaged group of people in order to, you know, ad- advance scientific knowledge, but like at their expense. Um, and it's one of the the things that actually like led to a lot of the development of these institutional review boards and and like all of this paperwork that everyone complains about all the time but of course is like hugely important for keeping terrible shit from happening uh so the tuskegee study was uh, a clinical trial conducted um between 1932 and 1972. wow um i know right it and it just gets worse so the purpose of the study was to figure out how syphilis progressed through the different stages in patients. And so when the study was started, there was no treatment for syphilis. So they basically just like found people with syphilis and they were like, well, we'll just watch them over time. Ten years after the study was started in 1942, they started using penicillin, an antibiotic, to treat syphilis. And um, it works really well. Actually, it still works um, to this day. And... Basically, they so the people who were enrolled in the study were all African-American men. 
and they were lied to. They were told that they were getting free health care from the government. And so they were like, great. Um, and then even after um, penicillin became available and the doctors knew that penicillin could treat syphilis, they basically were like, well, let's just like see what happens if we don't treat them. Um, because the Ugh. effects of syphilis take a long time to kind of come up and, and show up over years. It takes a while for it to go into your brain and like make you crazy. So, uh, yeah, basically they did that. They lied to these people. They enrolled them in the study. And um, and although technically there was no treatment available when they started the study, they let them go for decades after the treatment became available uh, without treating them. Wow. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, it's like pretty much the worst fucking thing that medical research in the United States has ever done. And was that the government or yeah, like the US government? Okay. Wasn't sure if it was like Johnson and Johnson. So it was the, the public health service, which is a part of the US government um, working in collaboration with Tuskegee university. Okay. Uh, and so it's, it's basically um, like the most infamous biomedical research study. And basically like in 1972, so like 40 years after the study was started and 30 years after penicillin became widely available, like a whistleblower was like, did you know that we like still have all of these like syphilitic men who are just like not giving penicillin to you? <laughs> and and that led in the late 70s to the establishment of like offices for human resource protections and like all of these um, institutional review boards or IRBs. And so now if you want to do any research involving human subjects, you have to like fill out the paperwork, you have to justify everything you're doing and show that you're not harming them uh, and that people like understand what's going to happen to them um, and you can't just lie to them. And yeah, so like, I, I don't know, I just feel like as a practicing scientist, it's important, like this is kind of what I'm thinking about as I'm watching this episode. And I think it's an important thing for us to know about our own history and like the only reason why these things don't happen today and like or shouldn't happen today and for the most part don't happen today are because they did happen a while ago and and like given you know kind of like other aspects of the social development in Lyra's world versus our world it actually makes complete sense that there would be no rules or regulations governing what these scientists could be doing with the children um so that's my rant for today yeah and like our like western science is um or global science on a certain level is like very open and like um you know like peer-reviewed and and out in the open and like this you know um what do they call it experimental theology Mm -hmm. is that is like a secret Mm -hmm. right and that can contribute to that problem quite a bit like it made me think of um the united states government blowing up atomic weapons uh without telling anybody in the desert in the atmosphere you know like in the sky Mm -hmm. just to see what happens and then like you know in new york there's like radioactive fallout because of the wind from those from nevada yeah it's actually uh, not telling anyone So this is kind of like cool and horrible at the same time. But 
it's actually uh, one of the things that makes it really easy to date like more recent layers of sediment is that there's like a very narrow window of time in which there was like a lot of atomic bomb testing. And so it's mm-hmm. like very easy. It's like, oh, well, we know exactly where like 1952 was or whatever, <laughs> whenever you're uh, like doing <laughs> uh, geology work. Um, you can very clearly see like the pre-nuclear era and then there's like the like really intense nuclear testing era and then there was like as nuclear testing got phased out. I'm not a geologist, so I don't know all the details, but um, I know enough to know that that's like uh, a pretty like standard technique. So bringing it back <laughs> to the episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's interesting. I feel like in a way we kind of have less to talk about the episode itself because it was just a really good kind of standalone episode. You know, it had like really great horror visuals and mm-hmm. atmosphere, but then it's like there's less to say about it other than that, I guess. There was a demonless kids counting. Oh. That was some creepy ass shit. Yeah. And just like all of them being so comatose and and out of it i do i like the way that they used um that one girl i forget her name the one with the glasses bridget bridget yeah they they clearly show us the like the before and the after um, yeah as uh mm-hmm. like a symbolic stand-in for all of those kids mm-hmm. it's really good yeah it was super effective an interesting choice that the episode made was to imply that billy escaped yeah, I was wondering about that. She was like, Billy taught us all own. to hope. And it was like, he was like maybe seven and like pretty tiny. I don't, he didn't seem that bold either. I don't know. <laughs> but like, how did he escape? How did he get out? Why was that not something people were looking into? How did Tony get out in the book? Did we ever find out? Oh, in the book, they let them out. They do the experiment. They keep the demons and they just ditch the kids. Oh, I see. But then you don't get a creepy visual of all those or kids in the room. They ditch. Yeah, they ditch some of the kids. I think they move the kids, but sometimes they just like lose them and they're like, well, whatever. <laughs> they won't last long. It's the North. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's literally that's literally you're joking, but that that is what they think. I'm trying to remember in the book. Does Lyra start yelling about Mrs. Coulter before she shows up? I don't when think so. I don't think she's yelling about anything. I think she's just screaming for Pan. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what like, I mm-hmm. thought. Um, and I really loved that that subtle change that they made. That it's like Lyra's thinking on her feet. She knows that Mrs. Coulter is in charge of this facility, and she was like, "If I can name drop her and make yeah. them think that I'm more important than just a regular kid, you know, like." She's ready to blend in until suddenly her survival depends on not blending in. And she's smart enough to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And how when she sees Mrs. Coulter, she scared. screams mother. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That was so yeah. good. And yeah. yeah. And the, the way that Mrs. Coulter responds to that, too. She's like, I don't know how you found that out. And there's like a little pause. And Lyra's like, I'm not going to tell you. And she's like, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I like how that screaming is kind of inverted you know where she's crying out mother mother to be saved and then 
it's inverted after she escapes from the room and they're both screaming at the door at each other in hatred yeah. as they're like separated from oh each other. Oh my God. That's... And the door like literally severs them, you know, yeah. in, in the way that, yeah, it's so that good. That scene it's such is so powerful choice. and like visceral it's when they're both just like screaming at each other. I The editing in this episode was really amazing because a lot of the scenes like that, if you just watch them straight, would look ridiculous. But the way that it was mm-hmm. edited, going back and forth between them, and mm-hmm. it was really good. I would actually say the editing in this entire series has been very strong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This episode in particular, mm-hmm. though, it was really good. <laughs> I kept thinking of Anya from episode one um, saying that, you know, like, um, is Lyra going to realize that it's her fault that that Roger. I, I suddenly can't remember his name. Roger, the most important child in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Definitely in it for the long he w- haul. He was, right? <laughs> that Roger was kidnapped because of, you know, Lyra saying like, I gotta have him. Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking, you know, none of this would have happened to Mrs. Coulter and Balvanger if she hadn't kidnapped Roger because Lyra would not have been on the case. Oh yeah. She would have just been like, uh, I don't know what, I mean, I guess miss what would have happened. Would she have gone to London with Mrs. Coulter, but just not cared about all the children. So wait. I mean, she might not have gone yeah. at all, but there would have been no Yorick. There would have been no Serafina. The, the Egyptians still would have come, but they wouldn't have known about the Tartars because no alethiometer. Yeah. And like, I think the Egyptians would have failed. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Here's what would have happened. <laughs> okay, lay it on us, Kate. <laughs> Lyra says, I'm not going without Roger. And if Mrs. Coulter decides not to have Roger kidnapped, what happens is she just takes Lyra mm-hmm. because she's not leaving there without her. And so Lyra still oh, yeah. goes to London and trusts her less and does eventually escape. And then it all happens anyways. Hmm. Lyra would be less invested in getting to the north, but I, but she still would have like found those found Mrs. Coulter's study, I think, and found what was going on and brought that to the Egyptians. And, still and I had guess to she be... kn- she knew about the gobblers before Roger got kidnapped. Yeah, because she knew that that Billy was missing, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she still would have had to hide. Like she still couldn't have just gone back to Oxford. That's true. But yeah. I feel like a lot of her suspicion was really seeded by the fact that Roger was gone. Like, I mean, it's less so in the book, but in the show, they really hit it hard that she's like constantly asking about Roger. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I just think their relationship would have started off differently in the show because okay. if if Mrs. Coulter had taken her yeah. by force, basically, or... Yeah, that's fair. You know, if, if she had... You know what I'm saying. Though, yeah. If um, Lyra had been forced to go without Roger. I liked that sweet irony. That Anya was pointing to that, like, you know, yeah. Lyra caused uh, Roger to be kidnapped, but Roger's kidnapping causes Mrs. Coulter to fail. And, you know, I like that. It's like a good story. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's true. What matters is it's a good story. <laughs> and also we got giant bear York in that tiny balloon. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. It was amazing and ridiculous looking. I guess we just have like a couple other things to wrap up before we're done, basically. Yeah. Um, one thing that I loved was how the Egyptians took the difficult mountain path into Bolvanger, but then the easier forest path out. 
<laughs> you think that's just because uh, they were like trying to be more sneaky? Maybe like they thought the forest was better surveilled? I don't know. I, I think that was because the director wanted a scene that was difficult on the way in and a scene that was easy on the way out. <laughs> I was thinking that that's too. A good I, point. I was like, this doesn't make sense. Well, <laughs> they just. Uh, well, okay, here's the other thing. When you have like the Egyptians with all their like gear on the precarious cliffs and like all of the danger, it seems like really brave and beautiful on the way in. But then when you see them like forcing all of these like traumatized children over that path on the way out, that's like not as sweet. It yeah, actually exactly. seems like, like a little sadistic. There is zero yeah. in world explanation for this. This is all just visual shit. <laughs> I mean, I guess, well, the, okay, so the thing on the sled is the balloon, right? Oh, yeah, um, so if they don't need the balloon anymore. Yeah, and I don't think you could get the balloon between all those trees. Like, that really would be a problem. Uh, but I don't know about, like, well, I guess we got to climb the mountain. I'd be like, fuck, Lee. You why know, don't you just fly? Why don't you fire this thing up? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And we're go we'll go through the woods, and you figure it out. <laughs> well, speaking of that ending scene, I also... I liked that they had that conversation between John Fa and Ma Costa about like what was going to happen to the kids whose parents didn't want them. Mm -hmm. Cause it's like, it's kind of a dark thing, right? But it makes sense based on what we know about the world and the, yeah, that, that like not having a demon would make you a social outcast. Like there'd be a lot of stigma against it. And like, you know, it's, you 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 i mean like in your heart of hearts like you want the parents to welcome their children when they come back but they're not the same as when they left and like sometimes parents are just shitty yeah yeah i was gonna say i i don't think this is a phenomenon that is only in lyra's world yeah. no i mean like you see people do that all the time for like kids who are gay or trans or you know i i was thinking more about kids who were molested uh, by Catholic priests and who then were rejected by their parents for coming out about that. Oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I didn't know that that was a thing, but. Yeah. Because you harmed the church. You did material harm to the church by speaking up. And so you we're not family anymore because this is more important than our relationship. And that's extremely real. Ugh. And so that's that's what I was thinking when they were having that conversation. Sorry. That's a great transition into uh, the chipper thing that I was going to say, um, which is I'm just sorry. that. No, I mean, it is what it is. It's like the the important parts of this episode. I did think it was really funny, though, that I spent so much time in our last podcast episode talking about how great it was that the episode ended on a game changer, not a cliffhanger. Right. And then this episode, of course, ends on a giant ass cliffhanger. Literally, well, not a cliffhanger, but, you know, a balloon hanger. <laughs> yeah, because, like, this chapter in the book ends with her falling, and then a bear discovers her, and it's like, okay, game changer, not cliffhanger. Yeah. But they, they went different in this one. It wouldn't have been that hard to have her just land in some fluffy snow and, like, be a little disoriented. Yeah. And then, like, see a bear face looming over her or something, you know? But. But. The cliff ghasts have cliff in their name, <laughs> and they literally hang on stuff, and they were, they brought the thing down. Cliffhangers brought the thing to a cliffhanger is all I'm saying. I, I like what you did there. 
<laughs> so rewinding just like a couple minutes, I think my actual least favorite thing about this episode is when the balloon is leaving and everybody's waving and the kids all come in and I'm like, wow, this this just dropped its creepy horror movie to cheesy children's film real quick. Yeah, that is a weak moment. It, it, yeah, it's a hard shift, especially because that scene with Serafina and Lee could still be not exactly creepy, but maybe eerie yeah. or ethereal. Yeah. Like, there's no reason to do that. I mean, that. The, yeah, you're right. and the cliff ghasts are like very horror creature yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, jump scare. So it's really scary. just that one scene. It's so bad yeah. and uncomfortable. You know, I <laughs> think it was so uncomfortable. I blocked it out because I have no idea what you're talking about. And like, I didn't think Lyra and Roger are hugging, but in a weird, all wrapped up in each other, waving way. And it's just Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. I don't. And Roger coming along in the balloon makes even less sense than it did in the book. Mm -hmm. Why did it make sense in the book? I just meant in the, or I think in the book, it was in the middle of the battle and they just got on the balloon because it was where they could go. Oh, they were just like escaping. I think so. I, mm, I don't, I don't quite remember. I was wondering about that. It doesn't really make sense. It's just like Lyra's the person he's most connected to and his friend. So she's going to go off and like do this crazy adventure. He might as well come too. I guess. I guess. Maybe it wasn't in the middle of the battle. I don't remember. But I feel like it was just everybody got on the balloon and they left. It wasn't really like a big goodbye in the book. Mm-hmm. In this one. Oh, no. It's like, yeah, he like swoops in and it's a last minute save. Okay. That when they, yeah, when they get on the. Like, Mrs. Coulter almost gets them. No, that's a really good point. It feels like a parade or something. You're yeah. right. It's weird. The music was good because it was the return to their, like, theme from Oxford. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, yeah. the scene is not. It, it just didn't feel like it fit to me. Okay. Are we ready for the outro? Oh, wait. I got to do Moses stuff. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this podcast in a nutshell. Listen, I can't. I, I've been building up this Moses thing. I cannot let the, you know, it's fine. Like it's fine. I'll just bring up my people. Instagram. You talk about Moses. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the whole payoff, really, to the Moses thing is that she, like, she frees her people. Like, the children are her people and she goes in there and gets them out. Um, but it does, like, you know, she has that moment that Moses has with Pharaoh where it's like, let my people go. But with Moses, that's like very straightforward and in your face. These are my intentions. I'm very honestly saying them to you. And now you have to make a decision. Whereas Lyra is like, I love you, mother. Here is the alethiometer that I will obediently give unto you because now I am your loyal servant forever. Sorry that I soldered it shut. Let me cover my head as you open it. Uh, So like... You know, Lyra is winning by deception and traps, um, but Moses wins by being very straightforward and telling the truth and relying on the power of God and not his own power. Like, it's very on purpose that, you know, like Moses is Moses is not the one who frees the Hebrew people. It's God and his miracles. And the the last miracle that happens, um, you know, there's all these miracles when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And there's all these plagues that happen. The final plague is that um, the children of Egypt are killed mm-hmm. by the angel of death. And, you know, uh, that's that's where Passover comes from, by the way, if people I've, don't I've know. I've seen this movie. Don't worry. Yeah. 
that's where Passover comes from. So, but you have children here who are dying because of, you know, the things that Mrs. Coulter is doing. And so like, even that is kind of flipped around and inverted. So um, I still think those connections are there, but I think they're being intentionally inverted to say something about morality in modern times and where your moral compass comes from and where your power comes from when you're a disenfranchised person. Um, you have to like be tricky and witty. If Lyra anyway. is Moses, does that make Mrs. Coulter Ramesses? Ramses? Yeah, that's Ram- what I'm saying. Ram- yeah. Whatever his name is. She's she's Pharaoh. She is, you know, she's let my people go. But instead she's like, I I'm you're my mama. <laughs> yeah, I totally mean it. Okay, everybody, Will is in this episode. I very specifically reminded us at the beginning that Will is in this episode. Mm-hmm. It happened. <laughs> They, they cut from Lyra lying in bed to Will lying in bed, so you know that they are connected. Yes. Once again, right. linked cosmically, et cetera, et cetera. I got to say, as soon as the final two episodes are loaded in our screeners, the first thing I'm going to do is watch the final scene to see if I was right in my prediction. <laughs> That's very optimistic that we'll actually get the next two episodes ahead of time. Shh. <laughs> of course we will. I can't. I don't want to wait like the peons (laughs) well that's it for this episode join us next time when we'll be talking about episode seven the fight to the death uh and we don't have any spoilers for today so goodbye to everybody if you like our show please take some time to leave us a rating and a review on apple podcasts i'm anya and you can follow me on twitter at strangely literal that's strangely then l-i-t-e-r-l I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod, so you can live tweet Monday night on HBO at 9 Eastern Standard Time. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send your emails to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And remember to always scream at doors that won't open. 